ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. We spend a lot of time on podcasts like this predicting the future in various ways. But as we do that, we know life is really unpredictable. And as the scripture says, we do not, uh, we do not know uh, the number of our days. And that's why it's a really important thing to have a will uh, to protect yourself and your family. Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to walk you through the entire process of creating a will in as little as 10 minutes. You don't have to have a law degree uh, to be able to walk through this, and that's why it's really helpful. So visit morect.com, that's M-O-R-C-T.com, will, that's morect.com slash will to get started today. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. Y'all know on this show, we do a segment called... uh, so-and-so tells me where I'm wrong on whatever it is. This is not really one of those episodes because Kate Bowler is not on to specifically tell me where I'm wrong on a specific issue. But what I do think she does is to help us to think about where we might be wrong about the way we think about suffering. And particularly for those of us who sometimes when other people are suffering, don't quite know what to do or say, or maybe we have said the wrong thing, she helps us to think about that. Kate Bowler is professor at Duke Divinity School, and she's a best-selling author of lots of books, including (laughs) No Cure for Being Human, uh, and also Everything Happens for a Reason, and probably prospectively, her new book will be a bestseller, too, called Have a Beautiful, Terrible Day, Daily Meditations for the Ups, Downs, and In-Betweens. We've got a lot of things to talk about, including suffering, grief, ups and downs, but also prosperity gospel 
and all kinds of interesting things that Kate has been working on for years. Kate, welcome to the show. Russell, I love that I've gotten to a point in my life where it creates an awkward pause in the bio where you're like, she's the author and I don't know. This is a lot happening. Let's just move on. <laughs> that brought me joy. It is so good to finally meet you. We have a well, million friends well. in common. We so. do. I know. And I, I can't tell you how many times uh, somebody has said, have you and Kate met? And I'll say, no, not in person. <laughs> and so here we are. So everything happens for a reason. Uh, <laughs> you know, I want to I want to start with, you know, the, the new book that's just come out, uh, Meditations for the Ups, the Downs, and the In-Betweens. I'm wondering what your perspective is on a question that we have had a lot here in discussions. And that is, does right now seem to be filled with more anxiety yeah. and fear than before? Or is this just sort of normal life and a lot of us haven't noticed it till now? Mm, yeah, because as, as a historian, I want to say, you know, surely the emotional temperature goes up and down and it depends. We are not... You know, this is not, for instance, the 1860s. This is not the, you know, there are all kinds of fraught moments. But I do think that this is a, a moment with a particularly anxious tenor and that we feel the intensity of the human experience and our own connection and maybe our own fragility in a way we've never before. We've never been so mediated, maybe so divided in such a specific way, and so maybe unsure of what it means to use a common Christian language to address that feeling. I like the word that you use, precarity. And I, I, I think I think that word is going to stick with me now. What do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. Precarity is such a perfect word. It, it, it means contingent, something that can be given and taken away. And for such a long time, I thought that precarity must inherently be a bad thing, or at least not a very Christian thing to feel that way. When I, you know, I felt delicate, and I thought, well, surely I just have to get back to that place before where I felt durable. And then I read a wonderful comparison of the work of Dorothy Day, this uh, Catholic reformer, and compared it with Reinhold Niebuhr, the amazing Protestant theologian, and and both of their account of the word precarity. And Ooh. Dorothy Day used it to describe the state in which we live as people of faith, aware in the world, and yet delicate. And yeah. Reinhold Niebuhr described it in a way of like describing the delicacy of our world, but hoping it, that really we could just need to plow through with faithfulness and reasonable good conscience. And I was like, no, I think I'm on the Dorothy Day side. <laughs> I think that we, if we're really honest, most of the things that build our lives are things that can come apart in any moment. And once we know that and can maybe live inside that with a little more honesty, we might begin to start to say different spiritual things than we did before. You talk about in your book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, which we'll get to, to part of that a little bit later. But you talk about in that book some of the things that people can say in terms of reassurance mm -hmm. that actually don't help. And of course, those who know your story know that uh, several years ago, you were diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer and went into treatment and had a bunch of people in your life speaking to you. I think there are a lot of people when they have somebody going through serious suffering, yeah. cancer, divorce, bankruptcy or something like that, 
they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. Yeah. How does somebody work through that and and be present for somebody if yeah. <laughs> if you think, well, I'm not an expert here and I'm afraid I'm going to say something oh, wrong? Oh, totally. Because we really do all say very dumb things. And that, mm-hmm. I mean, I think maybe that's the, the right first step is just saying, I want to help. I will likely be and say <laughs> every wrong thing. Yeah. But maybe... One of the nice bits in that fear is realizing that you're just trying to figure out how to be yourself in this new context and then huh. and ask yourself, well, what kind of person are you? Are you the person who loves to rush in right away with the logistics? Everybody needs that person. That's the kind of mm. you should then if you're that person, if you're preternaturally bossy, bless you, email mm. them and be like on Wednesday, I'd love to drop off this. Yes or no, because people don't know what they need and they love a bossy friend. Or maybe you're the contemplative type and you actually have an amazing spiritual life. Then you're the person who should remember. You should be the faithful saint who mm-hmm. writes, like Beth Moore does this for me. She writes mm-hmm. my name down and implores the mm-hmm. Lord in a way that feels mm-hmm. like she's got bonus points and I want them. Right. <laughs> and like right. if I've been held by people like that. And I have felt the power of that. So if you're that person, write their name down and then send a little note in six months just to say, I've been holding you in prayer. I'm, I'm, on, your, I'm on your side. And then for everybody else, if you're like, well, I'm the funny one or I'm the just good at small talky one, great. Be that person. All you have to do is say, hey, I just want you to know, I know you're going through a hard time. You don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. I'm just on your team. And then let had there be a little pause. Maybe they answer. Maybe they don't. And then be yourself. Talk about sports. Mm. Talk about whatever. But like, then they get a chance to be to fit their personality in with yours. Otherwise, you you might end up burdening them with having the same sad conversation two hundred times, and they actually don't want to talk about it ever again. The things that I have said or heard said to me that ended up being very dumb include the following. <laughs> <laughs> Any sentences that start with, well, actually, as if as if what I just said isn't true, and they're about to surprise me with new information about my oh, life, yeah. well, actually, is never helpful. The the comparison game is always a lot of fun where, mm. but at least like, I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, well, but at least I could, you know, there could be stage five cancer. I could die in a different hospital system. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> I could have Ebola and leprosy. I mean, let's, let's yeah. try. Everybody's aunt has almost always had what you've had and they're doing very <laughs> badly. The ants of the world collectively have really been struggling this last year. <laughs> but but isn't it true though when that one I mean, I think about when Tim Keller was going through stage four pancreatic cancer, yeah. I would bring up actually your colleague at Duke, Richard Hayes, all the time. Yeah. Because it was a comfort to him to think about somebody else who, you know, has been through this for seven, eight years. And so it it kind of wasn't a I don't know if it was a comparison as much as it was yeah. there's a, a picture of hope here. Is is that always a, a bad thing to do? Oh, I don't I don't think so. I always I mean, I remember Okay, to be totally honest, the worse my life gets, the more I go see Pentecostals because oh, okay. they are so hopeful. And mm-hmm. sometimes you just need someone to be embarrassingly hopeful for you. And 
I remember I went to see this one pastor and they have this lovely practice called tarrying in the spirit, right? Where they just, they pray. It's super unstructured, just kind of hang around. It's sort of embarrassing because sometimes you just don't know what to do after a prayer. <laughs> like, do I open my eyes? Do I look around? But like, they just kind of sit with you and then maybe someone starts to sing or you, you kind of get in the groove of just having an experience. And at the end, he was like, hey, just, you know, my sister also has stage four colon cancer and she's your age. And, um, and he just put his hands on my head. He was like, sister, you're going to be fine. Mm. And he said it was so much love that it felt like even if I wasn't going to be fine, it was a, it was a, it was a gift of love. And mm. those things can be really beautiful. I guess what's so tricky about hope, and this is really why I've been thinking about it a lot again this year, because I had so much chronic pain that it brought me back to a similar place of where I'd been in cancer, where I had a very hard time setting goals, setting horizons, because mm. I, I was struggling to get through the day. And I realized that it has made hope such a precious thing. When someone comes mm. alongside you, what you're really asking for is, can you figure out what level of hope I can bear? Mm. If it's too much, I'll think you're delusional and you're not paying attention. If it's mm -hmm. too little, I'll think, wow, you're maybe a little faithless. Don't you think God can do anything? And wait, I'm just supposed to do this by myself? Mm -hmm. And so the, I pictured the friend as the person who just tries to sidle up beside you, evaluate how much you can tolerate and just pour mm. a little bit more in. What, what do you do in those times w that you just mentioned when it's hard to get motivated because of something that's, uh, that, that you're suffering? Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you get beyond that or do you just wait it out? Right. Well, I mean, and all kinds of burdens have their own bizarre effect of sort of shrinking the room that you're in. Depending on mm. what your problem is, the room can get very small. And the smaller it gets, the harder it becomes to manage the day without then making your life as small as your problem has made you. And so hmm. I find that th what we're describing is a very, it's, it requires like a lot of wisdom because you're trying to really evaluate how much agency you have, how much choice is available to you how much you can push into it. Because the truth is, if you don't like press the walls out, your life is going to collapse in at some point. And then mm. you get the great disease of despair. And you will believe that yeah. things will never get better. And you will, you will lie to yourself and others. You'll be like, nothing is as true as this pain or this problem or this. And in moments like that, then you're in a, then you're in a box. So yeah. I guess that's part of why I think so much about fear and pain is not necessarily because I am the largest bummer that I know, but because I'm always trying to come up with a theory of agency. How much can we tell people to try in a day, in a week, in a year? And what yeah. then can we ask of our Christian selves to kind of support that kind of trying? Mm. That word despair is really striking to me, I guess, because I've been thinking about it a lot. Looking back at a, a time in my life, just evaluating the past several years, there was a time when I thought, you know, I was in the situation Walker Percy talks about in the movie goer, mm. 
where despair is present because you don't know you're in despair. And, and I started to realize often there's such a gift in just being able to recognize what situation you're in, even if it's bad. Yeah. I think what people are looking for is a contextualized, embodied story that says the Christian life is long and hard, period. But there's, there's beauty and truth to be found, but it's going to look a lot less like I'm armored up. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You, you talk about the fact that you could almost sum up your theology in the words, even so. Mm. What does that mean? I guess I spent a long time, I spent a long time almost dying. Mm. There was one year and then there was another year and it just kept going. And I kept trying to figure out well, then, God, what do I believe if you're not going to make my life easier? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what, are, what do I believe about you, about what Jesus came to do, what heaven is for? I just started thinking, well, what God can be true of you now? So then it just became, even so, even if I don't ever get a cure, even if my life doesn't turn out the way I hope. What what will still be true? And I found that really winnowed down the number of promises to some like, <laughs> I thought some better mm-hmm. ones, you know, it's a lot less abundant life. I mean, unless I mean it metaphorically, <laughs> which yeah. I, but yeah. I think a lot, I think a richer account of love than I had before. And certainly a lot less me trying to earn my life. S- sort of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, but if not. Yes, that's beautiful. Yeah. There's this uh, famous English professor, Reynolds Price, who worked at Duke Mm -hmm. for a very long time. And he wrote in this one book that 
that he got very sick and that the friends, the colleagues on his floor that he like shared a printer with were the ones that had to take him to the hospital. And I remember reading this in a book group when I first got to Duke, when I first assumed that I was part of the glorious meritocracy of academia in which I would die among <laughs> my many gargoyles. And, and I thought, oh, how sad. Like, what a lonely man. He has only his colleagues to take him to the hospital. Mm. Fast forward six years later, and I'm in my office and I get the news on the phone that I have stage four cancer. Well, my family doesn't live in the United States. They are far away. And mm. actually, I, I, most of my friends from grad school all moved away. So guess who took me to the hospital? Mm. It's all the people I shared a printer with. And mm. the, the feeling in the first 24 hours of people... Oh my gosh, like I'll never, I'll just like, I'll never forget the absurd tenderness of what you assume are like people that you really wanted to impress. Then mm. looking at me with so much love, I woke up with a quilt that one of my colleagues in the Old Testament, Thea, had stayed up all night putting together for me, wearing socks I didn't put on myself. <laughs> I, uh, mm. I had a friend who knew it was going to be horrible, and he wrote me a poem and then got it published just to make me laugh. It was about bats. Mm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, um, I, uh, I saw my colleagues who I had really put so much stock in their, like, impenetrable wisdom as, as people who needed to carry me. And that, that was one of the most profound experiences of vulnerability I've ever had. Yeah, because you're probably thinking, you know, when things go back to normal, we're going to be back at our normal sort of competitive and totally, you know, disputes over who gets the printer <laughs> or whatever sort of time. So you don't think everything happens for a reason? Oh, my gosh, Russell. The amount of time we should spend on this is <laughs> I do feel that it, there are likely many cosmic reasons that I have not been made aware of, but that other people mm. seem to have gotten more memos than I did, and yeah. sometimes in very reformed Q and A situations. Why is that? I have my I have my theories. Can I but, ask you but, what your what, theories what your are? Theory? I'm very curious. I think that there's a there was a time in recent church history where becoming a certain kind of Calvinist, not a confessional sort of ongoing Presbyterian Calvinist or something else, but sort of becoming a Calvinist for some people was a way of saying my home church was dumb. And a way to have Everything that fundamentalism gives, mm -hmm. but with something that feels like it's more it's, it's more stable because it's more connected to church history and it has even more certainty. And I, I think I think that the really easily made Calvinists are the meanest. The, the people yes. who I mean, I, I remember a guy saying to me one time, the problem of evil, what problem of evil? <laughs> and so I think there's kind of a psychology at work there. What do you think? Well, yeah, and I agree that it's a learned community. It's a people who love 
argumentation and mm-hmm. a, a sense of history. The thing is, though, like I am a church historian, <laughs> so yeah. like it's hard to weaponize Augustine in a way that I haven't read, enjoy, and I'm not not aware of. I just, but the the bludgeoning with it suggests both a desire to put it in historical context, but also to assume a kind of, I think what bothered me was that it acted as if they were farther ahead in the Christian story looking back at me, wondering Mm. why I thought heaven wasn't Mm -hmm. enough. And that's the Mm -hmm. bit of the story that I thought felt intolerable. You know, the more I think about it here, I, I think one of the things that I've noticed, and I don't think I ever have articulated this, so I'm kind of thinking out loud, is, you know, I'm a moderate Calvinist, and that was completely different from the theological tradition that I grew up in. And it seems like there were two different directions for some people— the Calvinism was a way of broadening. Mm. And that's what that's what I saw it as is this is actually taking me out into the great tradition and to something much bigger than just Mississippi Baptist revivalism. Includes that, but is much bigger than that. And I think for some people, it's the opposite. It's a way of narrowing, and I don't mean that in a in a moral sense, but a kind of a narrowing together in a remnant mm-hmm. that that's able to differentiate the true from the false, and that's largely cognitive. And yeah. that that is, I think, some of what goes on yeah. with the kind of theo bros who are writing you, and I'll bet they're mostly bros, right? On the other side. Part of the difficulty with the Wesleyans and Pentecostals and those on the more perfectionist streams is you can, I can also fail to die in the right way on that side. I can fail mm. then to, as part of a process of sanctification, access God's power such that I learn to speak and use faith that would facilitate my healing or at least some kind of abundance. So it was, I guess it was, it really felt like, a bowling alley in which I was going to fall one way or the other. It was very hard not mm-hmm. to feel like I was sick in the wrong way. The Reformed mm-hmm. were very disappointed because I wouldn't learn the lesson, and, and the Sanctified were very disappointed because I wasn't using God's power. But mm-hmm. the thing that I I know now that I didn't know was the sicker I got and the sad, like the harder, the more impossible things became, the more God's unbelievable love bubbled up underneath me. And that had nothing to do with my ability to hold together sophisticated answers to complicated Mm -hmm. theological problems. There was just love. And so when people worry that they're going to run out or their faith is going to run out or their ability to tolerate difficult circumstances are going to run out, I would say, well, they probably will. But at that moment, I just, I swear to you, that is one of the only promises I really came away feeling like we can guarantee is that God's presence is, is, is assured when we are scared and lonely or when we're unsure. And I, I guess that's what makes me sort of no longer afraid about, 
I guess I just don't feel like faithfulness is like quite a, as loaded a word as it was before. I think I really wanted yeah. to have the right answers and I wanted to, I wanted to have like a well-built mind, but, and I, but now I just feel like I know that underneath all of it is, is the fact that we will never be alone. Hmm. And that. Underneath are the everlasting life. Yeah. Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity Today, and we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is by having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step, and you can get started today by visiting morect.com slash will. That's more with just one O, ct.com slash will. And for a limited time, you can get 10% off. That's morect.com slash will. You've studied prosperity gospel, and I'm not just talking about prosperity gospel, it goes well, well beyond that, but you've, you've studied that. Why does that resonate or seem to resonate so much? Well, I, it's possible that it's because we've kind of, I mean, in the, in the song of God's story, I'm just doing piano hands right now. I hope that's very helpful to you, Russell. <laughs> but in the song of God's story, I think we have just like played the note of like justification. God has died for you. And like, which is a big one. But then it really became very quickly Jesus has done all the terrible stuff so that we can have all the good stuff. And then it goes right into the like benefits. Now we're an mm. Easter people. And I don't think we really know what to do like before we're an Easter people. You, you've studied prosperity gospel. Is the, is the future of Christianity, when you look at Global South and, mm -hmm. and, and elsewhere, is the future of world Christianity right now prosperity gospel, Pentecostalism? I would say that certainly Pentecostalism and Neo-Pentecostalism and what I would think of as largely as soft prosperity is has already won. It's certainly won American Christianity if you look at mm. the percentages of like what most of the most successful megachurches are doing. And and so that means that whether we're talking about the therapeutic benefits of Christianity or the healing benefits, we're really in a benefits model <laughs> now. Oh, yeah. And certainly God wants to be a part of every part of our life. But I, I think we are worried. We're all, we're, we're playing all of the brightest notes of that song now. Hmm. And, and what do you mean by soft prosperity gospel? What I found was that the, the the caricatures that people often think of as speak a word and then money will appear, that this very supernaturalist, immediatist version I call hard prosperity, in which there's a direct causal link between positive thought and health and wealth, 
And then there's a soft prosperity. Ones like a, just think of like a Joel Osteen or a Joyce Meyer mm-hmm. or a, that if you think and speak in the right way, and you know there might be something a little bit more roundabout, but then good things will always come back to you. Sometimes it can be as simple as like smile and the boss will notice you, but that good things will always come to those with faith. And my theory, one of my theories is, and I wonder what you think about this, is that the the kind of relationship that a lot of people have had with prosperity gospel, hard and soft prosperity gospel preachers has led to the, the very thing that so many people can't understand. So I'll have people who will say to me, why do these lower working class people who are trying to make rent, why would they gravitate towards somebody who's not just as wealthy as Donald Trump, but as garishly, (laughs) audaciously wealthy. And I will often say, you know, Kenneth Copeland isn't being found out that he has a private jet. That's actually part of the appeal. Yeah. Is this happened to me? It can happen to you. Yeah. We get in these very show and tell sort of theological circuits where like, well, how do you know? And I mean, and people can do it in ways like, well, look how big my church is. But we often Mm -hmm. want to see then the fruits of the spirit. And then it becomes a very materialist story. So how do you know that God is good? Well, what God has done for me, God can do for you. Therefore, equals jets. It does get to jets pretty fast. Yeah, 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 it does get to Jets, man. Did you see this uh, piece that Simeon Zoll, I believe, did in Mockingbird Journal looking at what kinds of churches actually do facilitate change? If you're just looking at observable change, addiction, those kinds of things, and you have the sort of a model that would say, there's a cognitive answer. It's it's a theology, and here it is. There are other churches that would have a, it's a sacramental answer, mm-hmm. and here that is. But the ones that actually produced the most change were largely Pentecostal churches where there was this experiential mm-hmm. aspect of, of relatedness to God. Mm-hmm. Do, does that resonate with with your work? I guess, I mean, there's been a historic argument we call redempt and lift, in which the very radical claims that, say, a Pentecostal church will place on the newly converted are so much more stringent that they can really shape and mold. It's just, it's strong medicine. So mm. they're going to then expect for, let's say, let's say there's a an, a an abusive man who's in a congregation with his family. Well, they're going to have a women's ministry for her. They're going to have wraparound Sunday school stuff for the kids and then camps. They're going to, and then for the man, they're going to ask him to stop drinking. They're going to have like a strong, intense discipleship. Oh, wait. And now the family's finances are better. And now the, so there's a cascading effect of, of strong claims on on congregants. And so the, the the churches with the most sort of intense transformation stories often be the ones in which they expect the most, but then it's kind of what they call redempt and lift. Hmm. 
The subtitle, we've not we've not talked about the ups a lot. We've just talked about <laughs> the downs and the, the, downs. In the tweeds. <laughs> and I think I think part of that is because it's 2024. Yeah. And so there aren't a lot of people who would say I'm having the time yeah. of my life. But but there probably yes. are some, and there's some listening to this. What sort of counsel would you give to somebody when things are going mm. well yeah. and right to keep a sense of gratitude and the right kind of precarity? Yeah. Oh, because we get these beautiful seasons where we feel the wind at our back and we feel like we're walking on stilts. And if you're in a season like that, then like, bless that. Those are gorgeous moments in which we have, we can often have bursts of creativity. We have the gift then of service where what we have had given to us, we can give to others. Like those are, those are great seasons. And they're also moments in which we get to recalibrate that, you know, there are times of, you know, there's kind of an apocalyptic time. There can be a tragic time, but there can be the beauty of ordinary time. Like you mm. get out into nature, you start to be weird about how skunks actually look really nice in the night. If you're in Canada in a pandemic and your name is Kate, and you get <laughs> talk to everyone about skunks for a full week. You you regain the act of noticing, of reminding yourself of the beauty of the ordinary world. That's it's a great place to know God in a more detailed way. So I think that's right. The act of cultivated attention of gratitude is a really good one in a season like that, but not gratitude police. Like you're allowed to be sad anytime you want to. It's fine. You, you know, Beekner said, when you find tears in your eyes, pay attention mm. to that. And it often tells you a great deal about yourself. And <laughs> I was noticing the other day that tears come to my eyes every time that I see, of all things, the series finale of The Office. Oh, that's nice. Which, which I have seen oh. far too many times to even recount here. But the, the scene when at the end, when Pam starts to say, you know, I don't know why you wanted to look at a paper company, but I've, I've started to realize that there's beauty in ordinary things. And oh. Jim is talking about how all of these things he can see happening in his life. And every time I'll tear up at that. <laughs> and there'll be these moments when I'll just sort of, and y yesterday was one of them. These moments where I'll be sitting at the table and I've, I'm taking everything for granted. And I just almost stepped back mm -hmm. and looked almost as an observer and, mm. There's just so much for which to be grateful. Yes. And I just don't pay attention to it enough. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It's how I feel about my 10-year-old. Like, mm -hmm. God has given no one greater freckles than his mm -hmm. nose. And, like, he made a whole outfit out of paper towels the other day. Oh. And, and nothing feels like holding a kid in a towel. Just nothing. <laughs> so I... We get given these really surreal moments where we have to slow things down. We get these seasons where we're begging God to speed things up. But like none of them, none, none of them are a surprise. You know? mm. They're just, they're all it's just the different notes of this song. We just, mm. I think we just feel a little singing it, sorry, a little silly singing it sometimes. But I'm just... I'm trying to get used to the fact that maybe there'll be a little more 
a little more scope, a little more range, high highs, low lows. And this is, this is the human condition. The book is Have a Beautiful, Terrible Day, Daily Meditations for the Ups, Downs, and In-Betweens. Kate Bowler, I just so enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for being with us. This was fun. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Mackenzie Hill. Director of Operations for CT Media, Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Mm-hmm.